Secrets and Spies presents Espresso Martini with Chris Carr and Matt Fulton. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Espresso Martini. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Chris. Good to be back. Good. And thankfully, we're now recording, which is good. So, because we weren't just a second ago. Yes. Um, so, yes, we've got another jam-packed episode of Espresso Martini. And we also have our new Patreon-exclusive show, Extra Shot. Extra Shot just starts after we finish Espresso Martini. And Matt and I will look at other stories that have also caught our eye in the world of espionage, geopolitics, and intrigue. To get access to Extra Shot, just go to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies or click on the link in your podcast app. And depending on which level you support, you'll get some free Secrets of Spies coasters or a coffee cup as a thank you. So today, um, today's a bit of a different episode because we're joined by a special guest, Dan Cazetta. And he is an expert on chemical, biological and radiological weapons. And you may remember we talked about Dan in the last episode as he found out he'd been blacklisted and banned by the UK government for speaking at official events. So Dan will join us a bit later in this episode to discuss what he's experienced and what he's found out about his blacklisting. But before we kind of go there, we are going to have a look at just some of the stories that have caught our eye. Earlier this week, former FBI agent Robert Hansen died in jail. And Robert Hansen was very famous for spying for the Russians and arguably might have been one of the most damaging double agents in recent history. There's a really good article on the BBC website titled Robert Hansen, the fake job that caught the FBI agent who spied for Moscow. So Matt, I'm going to just quickly go through the key points and then I'll come to you for your thoughts. Sure. So Robert Hansen was a former FBI agent who has died in prison and he is known as the most one of the most damaging spies in the history of the FBI. He spied for over some 20 years and he leaked highly classified secrets to Moscow, resulting in significant betrayals that the agency claims cost lives. It took the efforts of 300 agents to finally apprehend him. And Hansen's espionage activities began in the mid-1980s, after he had already been working for the FBI for a decade. And he operated as a mole, selling top-secret documents to the USSR, and later post-Soviet Russian intelligence agency, the SVR. He apparently leaked over 6,000 pages of secrets to the Kremlin intelligence services. Worst of all, some of that information he supplied to his Russian paymasters led to the armed masking of at least nine double agents who were working secretly for the US. Several of them were executed. Among the classified information he handed over were documents related to American nuclear programs and Soviet attempts to gather intelligence on them. In exchange for his deception, Hansen received substantial payments totaling 1.4 million in cash, diamonds and funds in a secret bank account. Hansen managed to operate undercover for a significant period of time, employing traditional espionage techniques such as dead drops. He relied on dead drops, leaving materials for his handlers to find, and he chose inconspicuous locations in a suburban Virginia neighbourhood near Washington, D.C. to leave his stolen intelligence. Furthermore, his handlers in Moscow were unaware of his true identity as he used the alias Ramon Garcia. Hansen continues his activities even after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the dissolution of the USSR, attempting to communicate with the Russians until the moment of his arrest. However, a series of intelligence breakthroughs eventually led to the FBI identifying him as the mole. 
The FBI devised a plan to place Hansen under surveillance, transferring him to a different position within the Bureau and creating a fake job where operatives could monitor his activities. FBI Richard Garcia, no relation to the alias that Hansen used, um, along with undercover operative Eric O'Neill, played pivotal roles in gathering evidence and eventually exposing Hansen's espionage activities, which culminated in the arrest of Hansen in 2001. Now, if you've not seen it, there's actually a pretty good film called Breach with Chris Cooper, who plays Robert Hansen, and Ryan Philippe as Eric O'Neill. So uh, it's definitely worth having a watch of that. So Matt, this is a pretty sort of, I suppose, historic moment, the death of Robert Hansen. What are your thoughts on all this? Yeah, I, um, it's kind of weird. I was recently for, uh, actually a couple days ago for, for research for active measures, I was looking around at the Florence ADX supermax prison yeah. where, where Hansen has been for the last 20 some odd years, you know, not, nothing to do with Hansen specifically, mm-hmm. just, just looking at the prison and the other type of people who were there. And I saw him, his name there on the list and I was like, oh yeah, it's that guy. Um, and then, you know, a couple days later, he ends up dead. Um, I don't know. I, I tweeted after this news broke that uh, happy hour around D.C. would be extra special for some today. Mm. Um, I think, you know, Hansen is right up there with Snowden as like public mm. enemy number one um, amongst people in the U.S. Uh, intelligence community. I mean, yeah, the, the kind of damage he did is really staggering, you know, like off and on from like 1976 up until, you know, the day he was caught in early 2001, handed over a lot of damaging stuff to the, to the first the KGB and then the Russian SVR. Stuff about like U.S. continuity of government programs, documents related to Mascent, uh, you know, like uh, measures, signals, intelligence, that kind of stuff. He blew the cover for the tunnel that the FBI dug under the Soviet embassy in 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 Washington. Yeah, really, just kind of staggering damage to the community. Um, it's sort of always been a bit unclear as to you know, like why he did it. You know, I, I mean, he it's it's reported that he was. Uh, paid by the Russians up to like $1.4 million in diamonds and just $800,000 in cash, which it really is not a lot of money if you think about it. No, I thought that too. I mean, I, I know if you uh, take into account sort of inflation stuff, it's probably a bit more than it sounds. But at the same time, is for the risks, it's still not that much, is it? Yeah, back then, yeah. But I mean, you think like the trade-off you know, and and the punishment that he got, like a fifteen life sentences in 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 ADX Florence. It's a particularly, I mean, that's like the most maximum security prison in the United States. Like the worst of the worst go there. Like a lot of terrorists, like uh, the guy who did the ninety three World Trade Center bombing. Um, uh, Richard Reed, I think, is in there too. A lot of like, uh, I think, um. El Chapo is in there, the head of the Sinaloa cartel. You're in there. Yeah, you're under um, isolation for 23 mm. hours a day. Uh, you get one hour of of exercise, which is basically like you're allowed to just like walk in circles in this inner courtyard that only has a view straight mm. up to the sky. Like you have sort of n- no way to tell where you are mm. in the mm. facility or just what's going on like in the outside world the way the way their days are kind of regimented you don't even come into contact with other inmates you know so for 23 hours a day you're in this very small spartan cell like just you with nothing 
And I mean, yeah, since he was put away in like 2001, 2002, for the last 20 some odd years, that's uh, that's been his life day in and day out. And you think for a guy like, I mean, I'm not sympathizing with him at all. He absolutely mm. deserved what he did. But if you just consider like for a guy getting up there in, in old age, I mean, he was 79 when he died. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a tough life. So then you think, yeah, like you, you did this for what? I mean, I guess it was just ego, you know? I think it was ego. Um, you know, yeah. So I've got a few notes on that, actually. I mean, I, I'm also interested in his, his motivation. And one thing I noticed in his personal collection that I think is owned by the Spy Museum, in there is a Walther PPK, which is the gun of choice of James Bond. Mm. And I do wonder if, like, Hansen kind of got off on the idea that he was the smartest man in the room and he was playing both sides of the intelligence game. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, whether or not he kind of saw himself as some sort of James Bond. Because um, there were some notes by... By, by O'Neill, uh, Eric O'Neill, who helped sort of catch Hanson in the act. And apparently, you know, he described him as being a narcissist with a huge ego and he wanted to be a mentor and he wanted to yeah. impart his knowledge on someone. And he also wanted to be James Bond. And he resented that he was what he thought of as a kind of glorified librarian. Um, so I think Hanson was unhappy in the right. sort of job he wanted. He wanted to be a man of action. Um, so it's, yeah, it's an interesting one. That. Yeah. I think it's also too, I mean, he worked in counterintelligence mm. against the Russians. Mm. Um, so yeah, so like you're in the room as the intelligence community is aware of this mole and trying to find out who it is. And like, you're there in the room while they're having these conversations. I mean, yeah, that's a huge, uh, ego trip for someone like that. And also like a huge hypocrite. Like he was a devout Catholic, like the yeah. kind of go to like Latin mass every day, like that kind of Catholic. Mm -hmm. Um, at the same time, like, you know, recording like secret, like sex tapes with his wife and sharing yeah. that with people. And he had some kind of relationship with a stripper yeah. that he took yeah. on, on trips with him. Kind of reminds me of the BTK killer a little bit, you know, these sort of serial right. killers who, who wrap themselves up as really deeply religious figures, but it turns out in their spare time, they behave in ways that I think, uh, you know, God would be quite unhappy with. Yeah. BTK was in, was involved in a, in, in his church. I think that's how they yeah. caught him. He sent him a letter from Microsoft Word and, mm. and it was, they knew that like this Microsoft Word was like mm. registered to that church. I think that's yeah. how they caught him. Yeah, just like the arrogance of 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 that. Yeah. yeah, it's weird. And 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 one thing I have noticed over the years about sort of like big criminals, serial killers, etc. You know, obviously, it's either religion or charity they wrap themselves up as. Because if you are seen as, oh, he's the man who donates millions to whatever, um, it makes people. I don't know. Just it's a nice cover because you kind of look um virtuous and you kind of, you know, you just sort of. To many, you become the last person you think of as being that person. Um, yeah. Whilst I'm coming to learn that the people you should trust the least, the ones who supposedly are supposed to trust the most. So <laughs> I remember in a uh, just a small anecdote, years and years and years ago, we used to work in a photography photography shop about 20 years ago, and we had an in-store thief who got nicknamed the Phantom Menace by myself. Um, and it turned out to be the last person we suspected. The guy who did it was the biggest brown nose in the in the uh, in the shop. Um, and, you know, worked for the Scouts, did all sorts of supposedly good things. And it turned oh, out he was this guy stealing, I think he stole about 20 plus thousand pounds worth of equipment in the end. Wow. Um, you know, so, yeah. So sometimes it's the last person you suspect with these things. Um, one thought as well, you mentioned about his life in prisons. I've always had a bit of a 
you know, I think we talked about prison and all this sort of stuff a while back. I've always had mixed feelings about this sort of solitary confinement punishment mm-hmm. because it feels almost um, a bit crueler than death and maybe a bit unnecessarily cruel. I don't know. Um, is you know, as you just described his life, it just sounds like the worst version of the COVID lockdown. Really, we just yeah. stuck in one room, probably without any Netflix, um, and only out allowed out once a day. You know, uh-huh. it sounds terrible. Yeah, I think. I mean, there's been studies about you know the psychological effects of being in that kind of isolated environment for extended period like years and decades at a time Mm. um and i don't have strong opinions either way on if it's humane or not i i don't know enough about it i think a lot of the reasons why i mean yeah in like florence adx you have like these Mm. like people like him you know um convicted terrorists and stuff but a lot of the other people are um just criminals who were like extremely dangerous mm. in the regular prison system, like 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 assaulting, um, r- like repeatedly assaulting guards and other inmates and stuff, and mm. they just kind of work their way up from facility to facility, and then you get to like the end of the road where yeah. like we don't have anywhere else to put you where you won't be a danger to others, and that's why I think most people that are in Florence ADX are there for that reason. And then you have some people like uh like El Chapo Guzman, you know, the head of the Sinaloa cartel, who represents, I think, a serious risk that a less secure prison it's feasible could be like assaulted yeah. by the cartel. Yeah. Um so you have maximum security for that. And then you have people like this guy or uh, a lot of the other convicted terrorists like uh Jokar Zarnaev um, the guy who did the Boston Marathon bombing a couple of years ago, that it seems like they're just placed there for like revenge, like yeah. people that like the U.S. government just particularly kind of dislikes. So we'll stick them in like the deepest, darkest hole that we mm. have. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, I don't I don't I don't I don't know. I don't have um, any strong opinions either way on if that's mm. uh, right or not. Well, it's certainly a better fate than some of his victims. I mean, this is the oh, thing yeah. with espionage. It's never a victimless crime. He endangered the entire United States with selling those secrets. He also yeah. led to the death of many uh, Russian agents who were, you know, obviously working for the CIA or MI6 or whoever uh, in Western intelligence. And those people likely got a bullet to the back of the head. And it's usually in a very nasty um, cell. And oh, is it, uh, I forget where it is now, there's a particular. It's, the place where they do it uh the fortivo prison in moscow mm, mm. and i think there are like remnants of bullet holes and brain fragments yeah. on the wall aren't yeah they? it's the last thing you look at so um uh, one of the i want to say it was penkovsky i mean mm. penkovsky was blown in the in the 60s i think this wasn't um a hansen thing but he was he was a um a gru officer who kind of like broke the cuban missile crisis that's it yeah um he was i believe he was like fed feet first into like an incinerator yeah i've heard that and, and it's it's an interesting that's open to debate but i had a chat funnily enough with michael frost beckner about that um uh-huh. off air a last year because he he did an episode um it was a cia show called the agency that michael frost beckner was the showrunner on and he's the writer of spy game mm-hmm. and in that i think it's one of the early episodes there's a fsb officer who has a similar fate where they're put into an incinerator you know alive um yeah and i don't know they, I, i've i've heard that it's i've heard it confirmed i've heard it denied um you know so i i don't know for sure but what a way to go that is true is 
awful. Yeah. <laughs> you know, burnt alive. Jeez. <laughs> well, look, um, is there anything else you'd like to say about Hansen or shall we move no. on? Bye. Good riddance. Bye. Yeah. Goodbye to a very complicated and, and dangerous man. Um, yeah. So there we go. So moving on, we're now going into a pre-recorded interview that Matt and I recorded with Dan Kazita last week. And we're going to talk about how he was disinvited from speaking at a chemical weapons demilitarization conference, which was being run by the British government. Dan has subsequently found out that he's been blacklisted from speaking at any event hosted by the UK government. So Dan now joins us to explain what he found out. So, Dan, thank you very much for joining us today. Matt and I were discussing your blacklisting by the UK government on our last episode of Espresso Martini, and I'd like to just go through with you um, today what happened to you. So I guess before we start, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, for the benefit of listeners who are unfamiliar with you and your work? Okay. My name is Dan Kazita. I have about 30, well, more than 30 years experience now in protecting and counteracting and dealing with the threat posed by chemical, biological, and radiological weapons. Mm -hmm. And it's a career that started in the U.S. Army in the early 1990s and took me through assignments in the Pentagon, the White House military office, the U.S. Secret Service, where I protected George Bush Jr. from such weapons. Yep. Uh, it brought me to the U. Well, personal reasons brought me to the U.K., but my uh, in 2008, my career continued and I Worked in private industry for a company that makes detection equipment to detect these kind of hazards. And for the last 12 years now, I've been a consultant, writer, uh, more recently uh, a serious historian of the history of chemical and biological weapons. I've got several several books out. Uh, I'm a. It's not a very big pond that I'm in. I'm a big fish in a small <laughs> pond. Dan, thanks for coming on. It's uh, good to have you. Can you talk us a bit about what the event you were invited to and what you're going to discuss there? Yeah, I, I found myself embroiled in a scandal, basically. Uh, a scandal wasn't me. It's the, it's the government's scandal, and I found out about it, basically. And let me give a preface to this. One of the many roles or hats that I, I wear, you know, is I'm, a, I'm an associate fellow of the Royal United Services Institute, mm -hmm. which is the oldest and longest standing very prestigious defense and security think tank here in London. Now, I don't work for them. An associate fellow is more of a arm's length relationship. I have done consulting work for them. Uh, two years ago, my my master's at RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute, I'll just call them RUSI for short here. That's what everybody here calls them. Uh, said, Dan, we really want you to go to this uh, chemical demilitarization conference. It's an annual thing. I say, yes, yes, I know. It's the world's most boring conference. I know. But yes, okay, <laughs> fine. Uh, fine, I'll go. Uh, and it's an annual conference uh, for many, many years. It's been hosted here in the UK by the UK government. Uh, and some previous years it's been elsewhere. Uh, but for the last number of years, it's, it's either been in London or uh, online because of COVID. So in 2021, I was asked to speak, and I gave a relatively short speech on, you know, presentation, uh, maybe a dozen slides on scenarios where I thought chemical demilitarization uh, might be a, a, a possibility in the future. Now, for the benefit of the audience, chemical demilitarization is the sometimes tedious and highly technical process of getting rid of old chemical weapons whether they are things that are left over from a national program, like the United States is still grinding its way, both literally and metaphorically, through the very last sort of 
you know, remnants of its old stuff that it made during the Cold War. Or, for example, chemical weapons are discovered in a, a conflict zone or left over an old battlefield. So chemical demilitarization is, has been a thing for, mm. you know, well, over 100 mm. years now in, in places like uh, Belgium and France where things do get dug up. So it's, a, it's an annual conference about that. Uh, at the risk of only the slightest possible hyperbole, it's a place where if you have 109 uh, slides on the best possible synthetic drill bit to drill into an artillery shell without setting it off, this will be your forum. It's not, it's not a, a forum for controversy or, or anything like that. It's a very technical conference, at which I was at the least technical end of a technical conference. So I went and I presented in 2021, no problem. Didn't think anything else of it. January of this year, the conference organizers, who were um, an arm of the MOD, the Ministry of Defense here, uh, reached out to me and said, Dan, would you like to come back again? I said, okay, well, maybe why? And they said, well, yes, but you're going to have to pay the registration fee. I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on. I don't pay to do work. People pay me to do work. All right. I'm not going to pay for the privilege of speaking at your conference. And they were like, well, 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 well. But several days later, they came back to me. If you don't believe me, I'll show you the emails. I'll screen share them. <laughs> uh, they said, oh, we'll waive the fee if you agree to be a VIP speaker. Ah, that's more like it. Fine. Uh, the conference is literally a nine-minute walk from my house at a large hotel here in London. All right, fine. All right, deal. Fine. If I had to go to any great expense, I wouldn't have done it. But I said, fine. You're waiving the fee. I'm going to uh, – I'll do it. So I marked off the – the uh, the days in my calendar, uh, okay, I'll go do this thing, whatever. At least it'll be a networking event for me. You know, I'll meet some people I've in person. I've ne I've only ever met online. Fine, okay. In April, early April, I get an email. I get the stinkiest email I've ever seen in my entire life. I get this email that says, "I'm sorry, we're going to have to uninvite you because government policy requires us to check your social media, and your social media says." You've been critical of government policies or government officials, so therefore you can't come. And that's stunning. That's absolutely stunning. And so stunning, I, I just sort of sat on that email for several days not knowing what to do. And I showed it to several academics who are friends of mine who are sort of in roughly the same circles. Hey, have you ever seen anything like this? This looks bad. Yeah, is this as bad as it looks? Everybody says, oh, Dad, it's even worse than you think. I mean, my God, that's really bad. I mean, this is horrible. This is, you know, uh, you know, and, you know, people start saying, you know, People I trust and know started saying, hey, this is this is awful. You know, this is an abridgment of freedom of speech. You should be free to criticize the government. And uh, you, you weren't even going to talk about the UK government at all. You know, one guy said, I saw your presentation two years ago. You didn't even mention the UK. So it's a little bit like getting thrown off of a cooking show for supporting the wrong football <laughs> team. It's like a it's a category error. Well, can you? Can you talk to us a bit about, you know, this email then? So what, what was the sort of wording of this email? What did they say? Oh, well, yeah. Well, I, I'll, read it I'll read it directly here. Dear Dan, we extended an invitation to you as guest speaker to the CWD conference, that's Chemical Weapons Demilitarization, and we're glad you accepted. Thank you for your interest in the conference and support. Rules introduced by the Cabinet Office in 2022 specify that the social media accounts of potential speakers must be vetted before final acceptance of the program. This is to check whether these people have ever criticized government officials or policy. The vetting process is impartial and purely evidence-based. 
Sorry, that laugh is my editorialization. <laughs> the check on your social media has identified material that criticizes government officials and policy. It is for this reason and not because we do not value your technical insight that I'm afraid that we have no choice but cancel your invitation to the CWD conference. I hope that does not come as too much of a shock and wish you well in your research studies relevant to chemical and biological arms control. It is good that you strive to achieve a world permanently free of such weapons, best wishes, and it's a senior official in the arm of the MOD. I'm not going to name this person because I I still don't know whether this guy is really at fault or whether he said the quite out a bit out loud and he was made to do this. Mm. He could be a hero for... Um, you know, exposing this policy basically by saying this email, or he could be have made a really bad decision, and I don't know which way that goes. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt because I know who this person is. Okay. You know, I've never met them. I know people that know him. Uh, you know, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt that he was made to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is. And 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 as uh, the rest of the world has seen the uh, wrath of Dan in the last couple of uh, <laughs> a couple a couple last uh, you know ten days here. Uh, if it turns out he's on the wrong side of this, he's going to get a full blast from me. But hey, you know, um, he knows where to find me. Okay. Uh, if he's listening to this, you know, talk to me. <laughs> uh, yeah. So this whole thing's a bit, um, it's invidious. Um, that's the word I'm looking for. And it's, um, to quote the great columnist, there's a great columnist here for the benefit of the uh, listeners who aren't in the uh, UK. The, the the Guardian newspaper has got this witty columnist named Marina Hyde. She, um, I think she used the phrase Mandelbrot shittiness <laughs> <laughs> uh, with regard to something else. And that's what this is. It's every angle you look at, this is, this is bad. First of all, blacklisting uh, outside experts because of uh, social media vetting is... It's, it's kind of wrong on the face of it. It also implies that civil servants are spending taxpayer time and money going through my epic social media output. Dan, I guess on that point, I've been a fan of yours on Twitter for uh, a while, and you're very outspoken about a lot of issues, I think good issues. Um, what do you think it was that you said on social media that led you to being disinvited? I don't know. It's a, there's a wide... Um, there's a wide back catalog of stuff. If somebody wanted to find a grievance against me, uh, it could easily be. A journalist for The Guardian uh, gave some examples. I don't know whether this he was had inside knowledge or not on this. He reported that there was this uh, Twitter thread that I retweeted that compared the then Culture Secretary Nadine Doris to a, a series of car crashes. <laughs> we've all felt it. <laughs> uh, we've all felt it. I wasn't the only person that retweeted that. Um, and also I referred to, uh, I, I, I did also refer to an incident where they were threatening to deport an Afghan, uh, this yeah. poor Afghan guy to Rwanda. And I said, bloody Tories. Yeah. Uh, no, honestly, I've said far more interesting and frankly, you know, inflammatory things than that. I should also say, so have many of my fellows who are, uh, uh actually literally fellows at the Royal United Services Institute, you know, and I've said, I've said, things quite damaging to government policy and government decisions. Um, we, we have a government that's uh, at record low approval level. I'd say if you're going to cast a net and say if somebody has said something bad about a government policy or government official, that's yeah. most of us. Yeah, it's a pretty desperate policy, yeah. I think. It's, uh... Yeah. Well, not only that, it's totally disconnected with the subject matter at hand mm. and so it's a it's a it's a it's an outright assault on my professionalism it says i can't compartmentalize like i'm going to get up on a on a podium stand behind a lectern and say hey 
you know, the immigration policy is bad. When I'm being brought in to talk about chemical demilitarization, I was going to talk about things like, you know what? We don't know what kind of chemical weapons North Korea has, and that's a bad yeah. thing. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. the things that I talk about professionally, there's not actually any difference between me and UK government policy. Mm. All right. Particularly in a very narrow form like this particular one, where also a, only a small minority of the attendees were going to be UK government officials anyway. This is an international conference with people from all over. So it's what it is. It's basically punishing me for what I've said elsewhere. Yeah. And is it really, well, we want experts like you to self-censor. And that's a chilling. That's a chilling message to send. That is a chilling message, and that's getting into very sort of uh, icky territory. What have yeah. you? So, what have you found out, um, or what have you since found out about this blacklisting process? Because I know you've been sort of looking into it. Well, yes, um, there is a ridiculous policy now. I started raising hell because, okay, first you have to question this. What sort of social media vetting of me does not yield the fact that I know a lot of people. And then a guy that worked in the White House for 12 years and who is, you know, hangs out on Whitehall, uh, for, again, for your, your non-UK listeners, Whitehall is the street where a lot of the government ministries are. Uh, I have levers I can pull. I can have hands I can shake. I can have doors I can knock on. I have ways to make a stink that the average person doesn't. And I've been making that stink, okay? And I have give a lot of credit to my good friend, uh, Edward Lucas. Uh, he is a he is a columnist. He's been a guest on this podcast as well. <laughs> Has he? Yeah, Has he? he's been on a few oh. times. Yeah. Oh, so you know Ed? Oh, yeah. You know Ed? Ed's a good guy. Well, see, well, see, the thing is, I've known Ed since 1991. Oh wow! All right, and if you've known Ed since 1991, you know the whole world. Okay. I I, I can't say I've known him that long, but. <laughs> okay. All right. You know, imagine all the people that Ed has met and befriended in the last 30 years <laughs> yes. and the network he has. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, you know, he and I knew each other when we were nobodies. I'm still mostly a nobody. He's somebody, okay? And he said, Dan, this is awful. Let's make a stink. And we made a stink, mm -hmm. all right? Uh, you know, you could, you could read the blow-by-blow blow of the Times. I mean, I never had it on my bingo card that, hmm, I was going to share the front page of the Times <laughs> with yeah. Salman Rushdie. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah that's, yeah, that, you know, so I started making a stink, and the stink rattled out. A rather mealy-mouthed document out of the out of the UK government, out of the cabinet office, and this this mealy-mouthed document it's a document called "Due Diligence and Impartiality: Supporting and Protecting Our Diversity Networks." I'm not even sure that this document applies to my situation. I think that they've answered the mail with the wrong document here. Somebody has taken this document. One like repurposed it or something. Yeah, stretched it to cover things that it isn't meant to cover. Uh, if you read this document, basically nobody can speak to anybody or anything anymore ever. Basically, if you follow it, and then an awful lot of awful lot of people are going to be spending. Uh, it's full of typos too, I should say. These are either typos or they're uh, are, are really they've signed their own you know death warrant. Really, uh, you know their decision matrix here. Is it possible to run this event without inviting the speaker? If yes, you may wish to consider changing the event to avoid any risk of impartiality. Oh, God forbid should we have impartiality. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh, it's best just not to have any speakers, I guess. Let's just, uh, let's just have <laughs> videos. <laughs> Dan, have you found out about any other experts who've been blacklisted since? You know, like, what are we, yeah, what, what, what are we not hearing from because of this? Yeah, okay, because, yeah, the, the obvious, the obvious, uh, the obvious assertion here is that I'm the lucky or unlucky, depending on how you look at mm. it. I'm the unlucky person who got 
a little bit of a hint of what's going on because they actually said it in writing to me from a government email mm, address. Mm. However, my, my plight has outed other people. Okay. I have to say there's a, there's, there's a, there's a lovely academic named Kate Devlin. She's an expert on AI and robotics. Uh, she's come forward. She's been blacklisted. Uh, there are allegedly about nine or 10 of us now. Uh, I'm not at liberty to name names. Uh, there, there, we, we have a, for lack of a better term, a, uh, a, a neutral coordinator who's collecting the names is, is uh, Professor Colin Talbot. He, he'd be another guy to talk to about this. Uh, he, he put himself forward as the, as, as the sort of arbiter of this. Uh, you know, so n- we're, we're a little bit single blinded on this. You know, I know that there are 10 people. I don't, I know who some of the others are, and, uh, but not, not more than that. But I suspect that an awful lot of people don't know because, gee, what if you just didn't get invited in the first place? How would you know? Yeah, right. I mean, they invited me and then uninvited me. Yeah, which is, you know, I mean, they can't do anything right. I mean, <laughs> a proper authoritarian regime running a blacklist wouldn't tell you you're on the blacklist. Yeah, yes, that's true. That's yeah. true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His computer says no. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. It's just you wouldn't know. Uh, you know, what kind of shirk de soleil are they running here? <laughs> yeah, or you would just disappear some night. Yeah, or just you know, I just wouldn't ever get any phone calls or emails anymore, and wonder, yeah, right. die of boredom, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It would have been easy to leave me in relative obscurity. Instead, they gave me the world's biggest spotlight here. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, so on top of everything else, there's a whole angle. This is so incredibly, incredibly dumb. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dan, one question that came to my mind as well was, um, yeah, could this. You being blacklisted from this event by the UK government, could that have a negative effect on your work and being able to speak at other similar events? Well, yeah, it it it, it, it sort of casts a pall over whether uh, I can go to other mm. uh, UK government-sponsored events. Yeah. Do I bother to even try? Do I waste my time preparing presentations? Uh, until I get some sort of, you know, apology and shit saying, oh, no, you know, a letter saying this is all wrong. Mm. And, you know, and I doubt I ever will, to be honest. No, no, no. governments don't realize, do that. No. Not under this government. Exactly. And so there is that. I mean, it has given me a little bit of notoriety. Have people bought my book? Yes. But, you know, I mean, honestly, if somebody buys a paperback copy of Toxic, I get about a, a pound and a quarter off of that. You know, I don't make, I, you, know, <laughs> I, you know, I make beer money off of that. I don't make a living off of that. Um, does it, whether somebody would view this as a black mark for other kinds of consulting work? Uh, hard to say. I've done all kinds of stuff for the U.S. government uh, as a subcontractor. You know, while having slagged off Donald Trump rather badly, nothing ever happened to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, will I will I ride this one out? I certainly will because I'm a, you know, I mean. I'm the old guy in the I'm the really old guy in the field where people tend to leave young. Okay? I you know, I've got here as long as I got here a long time ago and I've stayed and I will continue to stay in this field. I will wear these guys out, you know, but I can't quantify the damage. Yeah. You know, that's one of the, that's one of the reasons one of the reasons why it would make it hard for me to sue everybody. Oh, just sue them. Uh how do I quantify the damages and I can't. I can't even figure out exactly who to sue because yeah, the right. cabinet office is pointing at the MOD. The MOD is pointing at the cabinet office. Uh, they're all turning to one big blob. Uh, and I'm not giving it up until I can find out who's responsible and metaphorically skin them and stretch them out, turn them into a canoe. Um, 
metaphorically, I should say. That's not a threat. That's just a metaphor. And so I don't know where this leaves us. Uh, what my next step is, I don't know. I'm continuing to uh, dig into this policy. I think that this policy that was thrown at us doesn't apply to us. It applies to something called diversity networks. Uh, I looked up what diversity networks are, things like uh, Christians in government and the uh, MOD parents network and stuff like that. I can't see how the diversity networks apply at all to the chemical weapons demilitarization conference. So my next step is to say, all right, what's the real policy then? Hmm. This is clearly not it. Yeah. 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 Right. And, and there's other people now, you know, sinking their claws in on this. You know, uh, questions are being raised in parliament. Members of several political parties are, have, have, have expressed support in this. You know, it's not just it's not just. It's not just me and one or two angry Lib Dems. Uh, we have a broader base of support, you know. Do you expect that this rule will be, I mean, let's say after the next election, Keir Starmer comes in and his people, do you think that this rule, I, I guess you suspect that this rule will, you know, go away? It'd have to because if, in, a change of, in a change of administration, this means nobody can talk to anybody. Right. Because allegedly it requires you to go back through five years of input. So that if the government changes, then the government can't get anybody that supported it because everybody who supported it, the government was against it before. You see what I mean? Right. This isn't. This is the kind of document that is written by somebody who thinks they're going to be in power forever, and that's chilling. That's a good point. Yeah, and and also nobody voted for this. There's no signature on the bottom of this thing. It's all mealy mouth and squirrely. Mm. Where did this diktat come from? Yeah, indeed, indeed. I mean, I'd read somewhere that. Apparently, there might be a connection with Jacob Rees-Mogg for this policy, and also there yeah. was an event that happened, I think, a year or two ago, yeah. um, involving um, I think Black History Month, and there were a few speakers who were um, invited who were kind of of a should we say left-wing persuasion, and they were kind of um, making certain sounds on Twitter beforehand about Boris Johnson being a, a, a privileged idiot and stuff like that. Yeah. The rumor is that Jacob Rees-Mogg in, inflicted this while he was in the cabinet office. It, uh, he is sort of in a distance himself, you know, uh, somewhat now. But, you know, oh, don't look at me. But that's kind of how he rolls, you know. Uh, yeah. These people think they act like they're immunized against consequences. Mm-hmm. All right. And the whole thing is, the whole thing's just a, it's a, it's a ball of shit every way you slice it. Yeah. You know, it's we're back to that Mandelbrot diagram of a turd. Every way you look at it, it's just a big turd. Uh, you know, uh, and what's the way forward on this? Don't know. Don't know. It's got under my skin now. Uh, you know, I've got journalists talking to me basically every day. Uh, I've got, you know, more to do on this. Uh, whether I'm going to turn into a broken record on this, probably not because I have other things to do. I've got books to write. I've got you know, upcoming stuff. Um, but. I also want to encourage other people to say, "Hey, it's not just this crazy Dan guy; it's it's me too." And I think the more and the more I can, more we can rattle out. And, and, and like I said, when I when I first got this, I was the only guy. All right, and now there's about nine or ten of us, and we seem to be adding to our number about one or two a week as you know word gets through. And I've been encouraging people who think that they may have been excluded from something to. Uh, Send in subject access requests to the relevant departments under the data protection, and that's how that's how Kate Devlin found out. Uh, you know, uh, she took one of the quotes that uh, was in was in the subject access request reply, and she's put it on a T-shirt now. I give her, give her a lot of credit for that. Bless her. <laughs> 
I hope they say something pithy to, about me. I have subject access requests in at uh, at uh, at the MOD, and we'll see what they what they actually said about me, uh, or whether they're just going to break the law and not accurately uh, you know answer those requests. In which case, this becomes a a legal case for the Information Commissioner's office. Also, what other stinkiness uh, am I going to unearth on the way? I mean, one of the, one of the things one of the things in this policy, their, their checklist uh, directs that uh, you you need to you need to check in on the pseudonyms of social media. So is the government running around basically outing people who are writing anonymous? Right. Or, or what is the safeguard? If they say, well, we think it's this guy. Well, that's not good enough to bar somebody from an event. This also means people who work for the government or are pro-government, uh, they can hide by their pseudonyms, but people who are against the government can't. There's, a, there's, a, there's an equity thing there. You know, well, you were never you were never asked to, like, disclose all your social media accounts beforehand. Right. This is something that they just did. Well, exactly. Uh, and not only that, even even though I have a very unique name, I've got imposters. Right. Partic- particularly in the last couple of months. Uh, who's to say they're looking at the right input? Very true, especially with the way Twitter is now. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, with the whole verification process all shot to shit, like, who knows if that's actually you or not? Yeah, yeah. Well, and all, God help me if my name was James Smith. I mean, I mean, God only knows there's a lot of bad stuff by James Smiths out there. If your name is James Smith, uh, you might not ever speak to anything ever again just because they can't figure out which James Smith he is. So better be safe and... You know, because I guarantee you there'll be a James Smith that's into cat porn and Holocaust denial and God knows he what might else. Be, they, they, they might want him to come in and uh, speak at that one. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, you know, just the whole thing is, it's just half-assed. And so whoever wrote this document, and uh, you know, like I said, uh, happy to, uh, you know, if you... If you go to my pinned Twitter thread, there is actually a, li- a link to it. You know, it's it's now in the House of Commons library, and uh, they've had to they've had to put a link to the document. So, uh, yeah, I take partial credit for having outed this piece of shit document. <laughs> uh, so, there you go. Where to go with this? Don't know. Watch this space. I will probably. I mean, like I said, I have found crappy things along the line here. I'm going to find more crappy things. Okay. I will turn up something else in there because you start turning over rocks, you find other things. Yeah. Dan, for the benefit of listeners, where can they find out more about you and your work and your book, Toxic? Oh, the best thing is my Twitter feed, which is Dan Kazita, K-A-S-Z-E-T-A. I'm the most easily found man on social media, (laughs) clearly. (laughs) Excellent. Well, thank you for your time on that. That's been great. Just before we get back to the last section of the show, I'd like to just take a moment to talk with you about Surfshark. Surfshark is a VPN service that allows you to protect your privacy online. And I don't know about you, but I'm always on the move and I'm very reliant on public Wi-Fi. And sadly, public Wi-Fi is notoriously insecure and it puts your data at risk. And I've now started to use Surfshark to protect me when I'm on public Wi-Fi. I contacted Surfshark and we now have a special offer just for you where you get 83% off when you sign up and you also get three months for free. So to get access to this offer, please use our special code, which is the word secrets. Just use the word secrets at the register and you'll get access to that offer. I've put a link in the show notes below, so it's very easy. Just click on that link and follow it all from there. So anyway, I hope that's helpful for you and let's get back to the show. 
Right, we're back. So we are now going to have a look at the Karhovka Dam that was destroyed in southern Ukraine. Um, so I'll just go to some of the key points and then Matt, I'll come to you for your thoughts. So the Karhovka Dam in southern Ukraine was destroyed, causing a breach and endangering thousands of people downstream. Both Ukraine and Russia blame each other for the destruction of the dam, which has held back a massive body of water. At the time of this recording, there is still a dispute as to who is responsible. Local residents have described how they witnessed floodwaters carrying debris from washed-out houses. Ukrainian emergency crews have been working round the clock to evacuate vulnerable individuals, whilst conservationists warn of an unfolding environmental disaster. The situation on the eastern bank of the river south of the dam was difficult to assess but over 40,000 people in Ukraine and Russian controlled territories could be affected by the flooding. President Zelensky accused Russian terrorists whilst Kremlin spokesperson called the Ukrainian forces out for a sabotage attack. The dam's destruction could divert resources from planned Ukrainian counter-offensive in the Donetsk region although the dam is far from the fighting. The Kohovka Dam is crucial for drinking water, agriculture and cooling the reactors of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The International Atomic Energy Agency confirmed that there was no immediate nuclear safety risk but added that they were closely monitoring the situation. The dam security had been a concern throughout the war with both sides accusing each other of plotting its destruction. Floods were already occurring downstream with videos and images showing communities affected and streets filling with rising water. The destruction of the dam could also impact the water supply to Crimea which is a point of geopolitical tension between Ukraine and Russia. So Matt, what are your thoughts on this? There's a lot of new information out about Ukraine right now. So there's there's this, um, there's what seems to be the beginning of the much-awaited Ukrainian counteroffensive, as you said, in the Donetsk region. Um, just last night, a lot of uh, fighting reported around uh, Zaporizhia, that kind of area. Um, and there's also new information out about the Nord Stream pipeline bombing that we've covered uh, a mm. bit. So we're going to... Um, touch more and go into this in more detail in the next episode just because the situation is a little fluid and probably by the time this episode comes out um there'll be more information so we're just going to wait and and get our ducks in a row on that but um just a few top line kind of um thoughts uh to your point at the beginning it's a little kind of muddied and unclear exactly what happened i mean the russians of course are saying the ukrainians did it and you know you can take that as you will it's the russians saying it um at the same point there's been two other theories one is that the dam failed just because of russia so the dam we know for sure that the this dam covers the knee crosses uh the Dnieper river right which right along kursen that kind of area um, in, in southern Ukraine has been kind of like the line of control between Ukraine and the parts of Ukraine that Russian currently occupies leading mm, up mm, to mm. Crimea, right? So the mm. Russians controlled that dam. Mm. It failed. Um, and one theory uh, has been going around since it happened is that it failed just because of Russian uh, negligence, you know? So like they didn't open up the proper amount of spillways and water built up on the dam and that caused it to fail. I don't know that if that's what it is. And of course, the other one is that, you know, the Russians deliberately blew it up and um, sabotaged it to kind of uh, prevent an amphibious 
landing by the Ukrainians across the Dnieper River um, and then push an offensive towards Crimea um, to the south. Uh, I would bet money that by the time this episode comes out, there'll probably be some strategic declassification of U.S. intelligence pointing to that the Russians were responsible, like sort of how we saw uh, before the war broke out, a lot of uh, the Biden administration pointing out intelligence of you know the stuff that the Russians were planning to do. So if the Russians were responsible, I bet we'll see intelligence to that effect come out um, soon. And if so, I mean, yeah, it's a complete – I think it just does um, – only kind of works to harden the European resolve to keep supporting the Ukrainians, and I think makes a formal war crime tribunal uh, a lot more likely to happen in in the future. I mean, to your point, it changes the ecology and the geography of southern Ukraine um, forever. I mean, I'm sure this dam will be rebuilt, not for a while. It'll be rebuilt at some point in the future, the reconstruction of the country. Also, you know, you said the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, there's issues yeah, with the cooling rods there. Mm. Another point, which is sort of like if the Russians did do is shooting themselves in the foot. So this dam, uh, fed a canal that supplied fresh water to Crimea and this dam being destroyed, uh, will dry up that canal. So dries up fresh drinking water supplied to Crimea. So if it was the Russians, like you kind of just shot yourselves um, and the foot, I don't know, unless we're sort of getting into a phase like near the end of World War II, like Operation Nero, where uh, Hitler was like, yeah, just just burn the whole country down as the allies advance mm. through Germany. Mm. Um, mm. I don't know. There, there's a lot I, I want to... Um, say about this with the Nord Stream bombing, with this, with the drone attacks on the apartment buildings in Moscow a couple of weeks ago that we can, I uh, guess, get into in the next um, mm. show once we've had time to really see what's, see going, what's on. going on. Yeah, I don't know if yeah. you had more thoughts on that. Well, I, I had a quick look at some local reporting. Um, so I'm drawing on journalist John Sweeney, who's based out there, and he's also been a guest yeah. on the podcast, and also the Kharkiv Human Rights Protection Group. So um, according to the Kharkiv Human Rights Protection Group, apparently Russian occupying forces have been overfilling the dam in many weeks prior to the breach. Now, Obviously, if you overfill a dam, if there is a structural failure, yes, that could make that worse. Um, however, um, there's also been there's been further reporting that um, those same forces have also been destroying other dams in other reservoirs, much smaller ones, and also constructing dams in other reservoirs to cause the water to overflow into flooding roads and fields. So that's according mm -hmm. to the Kharkiv Human Rights Protection Group. And then John Sweeney, um, he reported that local witnesses heard a single bang before the gushing of water. And he claims that this points to use of an explosive device, not artillery, because the Russians have been saying that the Ukrainians fired artillery at the dam. And to apparently fire artillery at a concrete sort of structure like a dam um, at a great distance requires multiple shots, not a single yeah. one. So that makes the use of artillery very unlikely. And apparently... Um, so with the Ukrainians saying that, um, yeah, the Ukrainians in the area say that the Russians blew up the dam with a mine on the dry side, and that fits with this, the reported single bang. 
many in Ukraine are apparently shocked at how this is being reported in the Western press as a dispute between Russia and Ukraine as to who's responsible, because in Ukraine, they see it as very clear that Russia was responsible, and Russian forces are the ones who benefit most from this action, not the Ukrainians, because obviously that flooding that area makes it very difficult for any Western-supplied Ukrainian tanks to operate in that area, um, and also it diverts resources away from the uh, uh, the military action that's taking place at the moment. So right. it's there. Yeah, I mean, I, I Putin's got a lot riding on this war. We've said this on multiple episodes, and people I spoke to said it. Um, I think we might be in that kind of scorched earth territory a little bit because this is probably the most destructive thing Putin or the Russians could do without firing a nuclear weapon. And they know if they use a nuclear weapon, they will. Um, they will get consequences either from the US or potentially even China. Allegedly, China have warned them not to use any nuclear weapons. So blowing up a dam or two does a shitload of damage and it's not a nuke and and the thing is yeah. it probably it might lead to and, I, and there is debate going on at the moment about war crimes um you know so there are some serious talks going on right now about uh, war crimes tribunals which is a good thing um yeah. but you won't probably see much else done other than maybe supplying more weapons faster or helping the ukrainians a little bit more but i don't think this is the action that's going to lead to um you know nato boots on the ground b52s no. rolling in etc um, so, and I think Putin knows that he's doing, I think Putin will do everything he possibly can that will not result in a nuclear confrontation or it boiling over. He's very clever. He knows how to, um, sort of pick away at things. Also then it, it picks away at NATO's credibility. And I've even read somewhere else that apparently some NATO members are considering, taking actions in their own hands and help and joining the Ukrainians in the fight against Russia. And if that happens, that will be a bit of a game changer. So, yeah. yeah. So I'm not, uh, it's a very dicey situation at the moment. Um, I don't mm. like the idea of NATO members freelancing on their own. I mean, the Alliance sort of famously runs on consent. I mean, that's kind of the whole purpose of NATO. That's how the, the organization is run. Mm. Um, I think a nuclear bomb going off is kind of the only trigger that would that would push NATO into the conflict mm. directly. Mm. I mean, I think we've said as much. Um, Biden's national security advisor, I think, said a while ago that the response to a, a tactical nuke being used by the Russians is we would destroy their invasion force yeah, and the Russian yeah. Black Sea Fleet. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So, yeah, so I think I think these sort of inst- these sort of things are probably the most Putin can do without setting off a nuke. Um, so I yeah. I don't know for sure, but certainly based on this report of a single bang, um, and just knowing what's at stake for Putin, I yeah. would not put it past the Russians being responsible for this. That's all yeah. I can say. I can't. I mean, it could be. It's all down to very bad timing and very poor maintenance. It could be that. Um, it's unlikely to be Ukrainian shelling because really, what does Ukraine benefit from this? Because Ukraine, you know, why are they going to want to kill their own civilians? You know, as John Sweeney put it, the Russian narrative makes no military or political sense. Ukraine is a democracy at war and its generals are at pains to preserve civilian life in the occupied territories as best they can. So I don't think the Ukrainians are going to go up and blow up a huge dam. 
Yeah. One one last point. The timing of this is just past the 80th anniversary of the British Dam Busters mission, um, which there's been an awful lot of documentaries about. Um, so, you know, it is, if it is Putin, is he trying to kind of point, call us hypocrites because we blew up a dam against the Nazis during World War II? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we'll know we'll know more about this in a couple of weeks and, yeah. and go in, in, into a lot more detail. Yeah, definitely. Well, look, Matt, that's everything for Espresso Martini today so thank you for joining me on that um everybody listening we are going to continue on now on extra shots uh join us on patreon for that you can just go to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies select your level of support and you can either get a free cup or coasters and then you can join us on extra shot and on that we were going to be looking at a boat full of spies that sank in italy we're going to be joined again by dan to talk a little bit more about kremlin critics who've been poisoned and we're also going to have a quick look at um, whether or not Vladimir Putin's activities of when he worked for the KGB may have been exaggerated. So we'll catch you on there. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. 